Welcome to the Dogwood Podcast, a presentation of Dogwood Church. For more information, visit www.dogwoodchurch.org. We hope you enjoy the message. Now I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and get ready. We're going to jump into the uh, lesson for this morning. And while we're doing that, I want to ask our um, ushers, uh, greeters, if you would, would y'all pull the screen over there in front of those doors? So we have a lot of coming and going in our services, and it can be distracting uh, when that takes place. Thanks. And guys, I'm going to need the countdown clock on this um, uh, on the clock so that we get all the things in that we're uh, going to. There we go. Great, great, great. Well, hi, everybody. Good Thanksgiving. Great. Us too. Us too. Hey, um, in the, uh, in, in the, the best-selling uh, series of books, the Harry Potter series and the movies that, that followed, in one, of the, in one of the scenes, we find young Harry and the other wizards in school at Hogwarts, and they're in class one morning, and the assignment for the day is to learn how to deal with a creature called the Bogart. Now, the Bogart was a strange, shape-shifting kind of creature uh, that would always appear to a person, any person, in the form of their worst fear. Didn't matter what it was. And even even, uh, people who did not think they had any fears realized they did because... The Bogart could surprise them. It might be a person, it might be another creature, it might be a, a situation in life, but it would always appear to them in the form of their greatest fear. Now, Professor Lumpkin that day had the task of teaching the young wizards how to do away with this troublesome creature by a particular charm called the ridiculous. Now, we, every one of us, face a similar creature. It it is universal. There's not a person on the planet that does not face a a creature that can appear in the form of our worst fear. And unfortunately, there's not a little magical charm to handle it. And um, you might say, well, Pastor, hang on. I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid of anybody. Well, yeah, you are. We've just not named them yet. This creature that we encounter is called in the Bible the fear of man. The fear of man. Now, now let me explain. What I mean is, is that we are all faced, every one of us are faced with the controlling power of other people. We have to deal with it. We have to deal with it all of our lives. Even though you may be an avowed worshiper of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, below the surface, you, like, like me, deal with the fear of of other people. Now, I don't mean that we're terrified of other people or afraid of other people, even though we might be afraid of some other people, but this is a, a much broader word. The word fear in the Bible is a, uh, is a broad word, and, and it, it includes, let me, let me it's, a, it's a word pregnant with meaning, so I've got to s- Describe it with a lot of phrases so that we can kind of get the picture. Okay, you ready? You ready? Here we go. Uh, it, it, it means, um, it, it includes, as I said, being afraid of another person, but it extends to things like holding someone or a group of people or a thing in awe and, and wonder and fascination. Uh, it includes being controlled or mastered 
are influenced by a group of people. It includes actually worshiping other people or putting your trust in another person or another group of people. It includes needing people. It includes peer pressure. That's the way we say it when we're talking to our kids. It's that thing of we call peer pressure. It includes people pleasing. It includes seeking or needing desperately or even just a little bit the approval of someone else. Fear. The Bible calls this, draw a circle around all that that I just described, and the Bible calls this the fear of man. Anytime you see that phrase in the Bible, and it's from the first to the last. It's from Genesis to maps. It's, it's in there. The fear of man, that's what it's speaking of. All these things define the fear of man in the biblical sense. Let me ask, let me ask a couple of diagnostic questions uh, for you that might indicate that you wrestle with this just a little bit. Uh, are you overcommitted? I mean, are you overcommitted? Do you find it hard to say no, even when wisdom indicates that you, uh, you should? Well, then you're a people pleaser. That's the fear of man. Uh, are, is, is self-esteem a critical concern with you? Do you struggle with feelings of worth? Do you struggle with your self-esteem? Well, chances are that your life revolves around what somebody else or other people think of you. And, uh, and so what you're doing is you reverence their opinions of you. you. You fear rejection. That is the fear of men. Uh, are you always second-guessing your decisions because you're concerned of what others might think about the decisions and the choices that you, you make? Are you worried that it'll make you look bad in someone else's eyes? That is the fear of men. Uh, are you easily embarrassed? If so, people and their opinions probably define you. That is the fear of man. Uh, do, you, here, here's, do you lie? Now, not big ones, but like when you're telling stories about yourself, do you, do you tell little white lies or nah, maybe that's too strong? Do you, do you p- posture yourself in the stories to make yourself look a little bit bigger or better or badder uh, in, 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 in the, the eyes of the, the listeners, well, then you're, you're, you're concerned too much about their opinion. That's, that is the, the fear of man. Okay, Christians, some say, well, hey, I'm okay so far. Okay. Here, I got, I've, I've got the silver bullet. I'm going to get, and this gets us all. Have you ever been a little bit timid to share your faith because you were concerned about what somebody might think? I mean, y'all pay me to be good. You're to be good for nothing. But y'all pay me to do, do this. And, and I find myself, ah, and, and, and there, there's that fear of trembling thing. What is that? The fear of man. That's what it is. That's what it is. It is a creature that can appear in the form of our worst fear. And we have no little nice charm called ridiculous to make it go away. It's a bad thing. At one time or another, I have done or been tempted to do all of the things that I just described to you. Way back, as I thought about this, Tibby, this week, I thought way back to when I was a little child, I can remember peer pressure make, causing me to choose to do something terrible uh, that put a scar on my soul because I, I, I was concerned about what my buddies were going to think about me. I was eight years old. I can still remember where I was, the time of day, and what the deal was. 
I was concerned with what they would do. It is a universal problem, and it causes big problems for individuals and families and churches and nations and the world. It is a big problem. Sometimes we fear people because they can humiliate or expose us. Sometimes we fear people because they, are, they can reject us or make fun of us or ridicule us or despise us. Sometimes we fear people because uh, they, they, they may threaten to attack us or oppress us or harm us. You see, when we see, when we see people as more significant and more powerful than us, actually, than God. Uh, And out of fear, we yield to the pressure that that creates in us. We give other people the power and the right to tell us what to feel and what to think and what to do. When people are big and God is small, that's what happens. Well, we're going we're gonna to unpack that today. As I thought about these things, I was reminded of an incident in the Bible, and we're going to walk through it uh, this morning. If you take your Bibles, I hope you have them. We use them every week. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians, way back over in the New Testament, about right here. Way back over, little book, about six chapters long. I think about 147, 149 verses, something like that. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Let me read this and out loud and you follow along. But when Cephas, which is an, another name for Peter, the apostle, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel... I told Cephas, or Peter, in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, let me me see your eyes a second. Quickly, here's the background and the setting. So, we're in the book of Galatians, and we know that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, this book, to all the new Christians and all the new churches in the region of Galatia, which is now what we would know as modern uh, Turkey generally. Paul and his ministry partner Barnabas had gone there on their first missionary journey and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with the the Gentile peoples who lived in those towns, led many of them to faith in Christ. They became Christians. They became followers of Jesus. They were redeemed, and and they organized them into churches in each of the towns. Shortly thereafter, Paul and Barnabas returned from their missionary journey back to their home church where they were ministering at the time, uh, the church at Antioch, in Syrian Antioch. Not long after they returned, a group of men from the church in Jerusalem who were not believers, they were false believers, they were sub-Christian, they didn't have it right, they traveled to the region of Galatia and they began to undermine all of the ministry that Paul and Barnabas had done by two things. They first of all said, you can't rely on Paul, he's a Johnny-come-lately, he's not really a real apostle, he just claims that Jesus appeared to him later and he's 
an apostle. You can't believe, you know, they, they really undercut the message and the authority of the apostle Paul. And they undercut the gospel. They said, now, yes, 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 believing in Jesus is good and necessary. But, but that that's not enough to be accepted by God. You must also become Jewish. You must become Jewish before you can become Christian. And they said you must, you must adopt and live out the, uh, the, uh, the identity markers of the Jewish faith, of the conservative Jewish faith, circumcision, uh, Sabbath-keeping, and the dietary clean laws, the ceremonial uh, clean laws. You've got to become Jewish before you can become Christian. Jesus is fine. And what they promoted was what Paul said First of all, it was another gospel. And he said, no, it's not really a gospel at all. It's something completely other than the gospel because it is the, it is the faith in Jesus plus the Jewish l- works of the law that make you okay with God. It's the Jesus plus something plan. And Paul said, no, 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 no. The gospel is faith in Jesus alone. It is faith in Jesus plus nothing plan. And so Paul wrote this letter back to the church in Corinth to try to put a a stop to the progress of the false teaching of these false believers that the Galatians were were just about to accept they were their their faith was troubled they were falling away from their faith in uh, Jesus and so he wrote this letter for that purpose and so in these first couple of chapters he's been telling his story to affirm two things first of all that he did not get his gospel from men but Jesus gave him the gospel directly and number two that he was a legitimate apostle and so he's already told in the first 10 verses of chapter 2 about a visit that he and Barnabas made back to the church at Jerusalem to meet with the, the, the leaders of the church, Peter and James and John, to hammer out and make sure that everybody was in agreement on what the gospel of Jesus Christ was. And that is that Jesus came died on, in our place, died on the cross on the third day. He was risen again, and somehow, by faith in Him, He paved the way, paid the price, and that by God's grace, through faith in Him, He would allow us to receive what, what the Bible calls uh, abundant and eternal life through faith in Him. Faith in Him alone. That was the gospel. And so Paul's been, they went to Jerusalem to hammer this out, and, and they all agreed, yes. The Gentiles do not have to become Jewish to become Christian. Now, Gentiles, for those of you who never studied this, this is the the language that the Bible used to describe uh, all of humanity that were not Jewish. All of humanity that was not Jewish. And so uh, we find then that Peter decided to take a trip to Antioch. He wanted to see for himself the work of God in the life of the Gentiles in the church at Antioch. Now, and so uh, there, that's where um, uh, he, uh, he came. Now, Peter was the fisherman that Jesus called to be a disciple. Peter uh, was the disciple who stepped out of the boat and walked on water at the command of Jesus. Peter was one of the three disciples that was on the Mount of Transfiguration and witnessed the glory of Jesus breaking through. Peter was the disciple who first declared that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter was the one who pulled out a sword and defended Jesus on the night of his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter is the one who stood in 
the streets on the day of Pentecost and preached a magnificent sermon proclaiming the gospel. And on the very first day of the existence of the church of Jesus on the planet, 3,000 people were converted, came to faith in Christ through his magnificent uh, sermon. Peter was the disciple who became one of the 12 apostles and whom most believers in the church at that day considered to be the preeminent apostle in the church. He was the big guy. He was the number one spiritual leader. He was the one that everyone ultimately looked to on that day. Well, this is the Peter that came to Antioch to visit the church and see for himself what God was doing. Now, Antioch at that time was the third largest city in all of the Roman Empire. Uh, it, uh, and there were approximately 65,000 Jews who lived in Antioch at the time. So some of them had also become believers. But most of the city were Gentiles. Well, the, it was a very, very strong church there. And so we find Peter there. And we, and we find right up front that Paul said, I opposed Peter to his face. Whoa, what, what was that about? What was that confrontation about? Well, here's the deal. In Peter's newfound freedom in Christ, he was having what they called table fellowship with the Gentiles, Christians there. Now, you see, in the Jewish faith of the time, in culture at the time, devoutly religious Jews were not supposed to eat meals with Gentiles, with non-Jewish people. It had to do with the keeping of their their ceremonial clean laws. And I'm not going to unpack all that. We're going to come back to that next week. And explain some of those uh, things. Just, just know that according to their faith, they did not have table fellowship with Gentiles. They were considered unclean. And so um, eating a meal in that part of the world with people signified the acceptance of those people in those days. It was a symbol of acceptance. It was a symbol of fellowship. It was a symbol of community. It was a symbol of oneness and unity of heart and mind and belief. And Peter, now believing having worked out with God and God the Holy Spirit uh, that all people who are in Christ are one in Christ, all the same in Christ. Uh, he, he was openly, gladly having fellowship with his new brothers and sisters in Christ who were Gentiles who'd come to faith in Jesus without ever becoming uh, Jewish. Now, he was, uh, he was enjoying this. All this took place before, take a look at verse 12. It, take a look, it took place before certain men came from James. What does that mean? Well, it means a group of false believers came from the church at Jerusalem and heard about all this these Jewish Christians hanging out with the Gentile riffraff. And they didn't think it was proper. And so they came and wanted to straighten things out. And they claimed to come representing James the Apostle, who was the senior pastor of the church at Jerusalem. Now, we find in Acts chapter 15 that James said, No, they did not represent me. See, they were a little bit deceitful there. They just got, because they knew James, they were kind of hanging out around there. They just said, well, we'll just, you know, we're, we're from James. They claimed to be his ambassador speaking on behalf of the, that great spiritual leader, but they were not. They were not. And so, um, where am I here? I've lost my spot. There we go. And so, uh, they came, misrepresented themselves, and so Peter... When this group of 
of conservative, who claimed to be conservative Jewish Christians came and observed what Peter was doing, he felt a little pressure. And uh, th- because these people still held to the restrictions, you shouldn't have table fellowship with the Gentiles. Peter says, gradually pulled away and stopped eating meals with the Gentile believers. Because he, why? Fear of man. Fear man, look at verse 12. Because he feared those from the circumcision party or the, the group that believed in the, the, the necessity of circumcision to also become uh, a Christian. He was swept away by the fear of man. Now, what was he afraid of? He was afraid of losing popularity. He was afraid of losing prestige uh, with a group of self-righteous hypocrites whose beliefs were sub-Christian and whose tactics were deceitful. And yet he was so concerned about this that he was, the pressure was such that he was even willing to compromise the gospel. Now this is not any old limp-wristed, weak-kneed wimp of a Christian. This is the, this is the dude... This is the guy. This is the leader. That just shows you how powerful and pervasive the fear of man is upon us human beings. It can sweep away even the great leaders. And by pulling away from his Gentile brothers, his actions, say, his actions said publicly that he agreed with the false believers that, oh yeah, the Jesus plus something plan is is right he compromised the gospel and so paul confronted him there he, pulling away he, paul says in verse 14 they were deviating from the truth of the gospel that means they were not walking in line with the gospel they were not on the right road of the gospel and he called him a hypocrite face to face because paul knew that peter knew better He was a hypocrite because he really had believed the right thing in his heart, but his outward actions were not in line with what he really understood and believed in his heart. The fear of man put so much pressure that caused Peter to live and act contrary to what he knew, contrary to his uh, convictions. And Peter's uh, actions and influence as the top leader of the church was so strong that he influenced all the other Jewish Christians at Antioch to pull away from their Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. And look in, in, in uh, verse 12 or 14 there, I can't remember, 13 maybe it says, even Barnabas, he says. Now that doesn't mean much to you and me, but here's the deal. Barnabas was one of the best known Christians in the world at the time. Barnabas was the guy who when the apostle Paul came to faith in Jesus and turned from being a persecutor to being a preacher of the gospel and and all of the church was still afraid of him, Barnabas is the one who sponsored him. Barnabas is the one who put his arm around him and said, no, 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 he's the real deal. And then Barnabas stuck with him in in face of all of that difficulty and, and he legitimized Paul. Barnabas was the one who became his ministry partner and they served for years. They they suffered they risked their very lives uh, for the gospel of Jesus together and 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 so but Paul looked and he says Peter's influence wrongly was so powerful even Barnabas 
fell away. He joined this, and when Barnabas joined this charade of the separate tables for meals, it was the last straw for Paul, and he stood up in front of God and everybody and called them on it. He called them on it. Now, here's the point. I've said all that to say this. You ready? Let me see your eyes. Even great leaders can fall to the fear of man. You got that? Even great leaders. And when great leaders fall to the fear of man, they take others with them. And even noble, mature followers of Jesus can collapse and compromise the gospel under the pressure of the need of the approval from other people and other groups. The fear of man is so strong, it can make me do terrible things. The fear of man is so strong, it can make you do terrible things that you thought you'd and swore you'd never do. Even compromise the gospel, uh, split the unity of the church, destroying the very lives of people, destroying the unity of churches. It's a terrible thing. Proverbs 29 verse 25 says it this way, the fear of man is a snare. So, why are we like this? Why, why are we so susceptible to this need for the approval and the acceptance of other human beings, even to, to the rejecting of the approval of God? Why are we like this? Why are people sometimes bigger to us than God? It's because there's something wrong with us. It's because there's something wrong with us. We have a heart problem. We have sinned, the Bible says, and our sin causes us to replace God with people. We take people and we put them in the place of God. We make people big, we make God small. And we have no power on our own to change that. This isn't the fact that you and I wrestle with this creature called the fear of man, this problem called the fear of man, is an indication that every one of us are people in need of a Savior. Now, how, Pastor, here's my question. So, evidently it's not a good thing to be here. How can I overcome the fear of man? I mean, how do we learn to live in God's freedom in such a way that the approval of others or the disapproval of others is not the motivating force in my decisions? What is the motivating force in, every, in your decisions? Or I guess I should say, who is the motivating force in your decisions? How can we learn to live and become the kind of people who live in such a way that the, the need for the approval or the avoidance of the disapproval of human beings is not the motivating force in our decisions. Well, there is a way. Now, before, can I, I'm going to give you the cure. You ready? This is quick. This is quick. But before I give you the cure, cure I, need to, I need to set you up a little bit. Um, this, is a sound, this is a big problem. Would you not agree? I mean, it, help me. We just lie to me. This is a, did you, yeah. Okay, usually big problems need huge, complex solutions. This one's not that I'm going to give you. There's a solution. It's not complex. Now, if I were to give you something really, really hard to do to cure you of this problem, you'd do it, wouldn't you? Lie to me again. Okay. Okay, I'm going to give you something simple. But you must do it. 
It's not enough to know the cure. It's like the day I sat around with a headache all day, praying that God would take my headache away. And my buddy said, why don't you just take an aspirin? Spend the rest of the day praying for the missionaries. Oh, yeah, I knew aspirin would do it. There it was right there. It was simple, but it was powerful. It would have taken care of the problem. This is simple. You can have freedom from the need to please people. Write this down. By learning to please God. You can overcome the fear of man by learning the fear of the Lord. Learning the fear of the Lord is the only cure for the fear of man. There's no other. There is no other. Listen to this. Proverbs 29, 25 does say, The fear of man is a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. You see, if the fear of man is is loving the approval of people, More than loving the approval of God, then the fear of God can be defined as loving the approval of God more than loving the approval of people. The fear of God can can be defined not just as being terrified of God. It really means to have a healthy reverence for God. It is loving God. It is being in awe of God and His glory and His majesty. It 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 means desiring God and pursuing a relationship with God. It means relishing in His magnificence and relishing in His love for us. It it, it has a full grasp of His justice and anger towards sin, yet a full awareness of His mercy and grace that that so much that He died for us even while we were still sinners and that He loves us and He's a love so great that it motivates us and enables us to follow God. It is a love for God that results in obedience to God. It could be the fear of the Lord is a reverent submission that leads to obedience a reverent worship that leads to obedience. It is a reverent uh, reliance upon God that leads to obedience. It's a reverent trust in God that results in a life of obedience. It is a reverent uh, hope in God that results in a life transformed into the kind of people who have the power and naturally obey God and seek His approval. We live for an audience of one rather than an audience of many. It, it, that is the fear of the Lord. And so, well, I don't have that yet. Right? Remember, the key, the verb that I gave you in the solution was, anybody remember what it was? Learn. This is something that God created human beings to have the ability to learn. Uh, if you don't have it now, it's just that you're ignorant of this. It's not bad to be ignorant, it's just bad to remain that way. We're all ignorant about things, something, just different things. But many of us, Christians even, are ignorant about learning the fear of the Lord. We learn to live for God's approval, not man's approval. Fear of God is the only treatment for the fear of man. So here, where's that? I just see Alan Reynolds in here. Alan, our favorite question is, yes, but how? Okay, here we go. Here, here's the simple. Now remember, if I ask you to do something hard, you'd do it, wouldn't you? Lie to me again. Yeah, okay, here we go. So, for those of you who are Christians, the first step is to know that God is awesome and God is glorious. Write that down. The first step is to know that God is awesome and glorious. And here's how we know that. Here's how we learn that. Write down the word read. 
Write down the word meditate. Write down the word pray. Y'all are looking at me. You're not writing. Write down the word read. Write down the word meditate. Write down the word pray. What I'm describing to you, I see Matt up there too. We talked about this. Matt, what I'm talking about here is what we do in our hour of being mentored by Jesus every day. You get with Jesus and let, you know, he's mentoring us on how to live and how to become an hour a day. Well, this is what you do with Jesus when you're with him. You read God's word and you meditate on God's word. That word meditate is a a Greek word that was used to describe a cow chewing cud. How many of you have cattle farmers in here? Probably not many. Anybody ever seen a cow chewing cud? Okay. Well, what a cow does, a cow has several stomachs. And so they'll eat a bunch of grass, and then they'll go sit in the shade and say, you know, that grass is pretty good. I think I'll bring that up again. <laughs> and, then, and, they, and they re-chew it and swallow it again. Then they remember it and say, man, that was good. <laughs> so they bring it up again, and they chew it again. Here's the picture. They thoroughly digest that grass the same word used for meditation in the Bible on God's Word. It means to thoroughly digest the Word of God that you read. Read, meditate, and then you pray that God would use His Word to teach you who He really is and what He's really like. To teach you. God, teach me to fear fear you. Now, if you pray, is, is it God's will that you fear Him? Yes, The Bible says if we pray anything according to God's will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. Lord, I don't fear you now. I fear people more. So will you teach me to fear you? Seek your approval more than any other person? Okay, I'm going to read your word. I'm going to bring it up. I'm going to chew on it. I'm going to thoroughly digest it. It's about you. And let me give you some specific passages. Let me read them to you. Jot these down. These can be the ones you read and meditate on and memorize. Proverbs 9.10. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You can learn this. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10 says, the, the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Assemble the people before me, and I will let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth. Deuteronomy 4.10. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 and 19. When he is seated, God, when he is seated... Uh, The king, excuse me, when he is seated on his royal throne, he is to write a copy of this instruction for himself on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. Speaking of the word of God, verse 19, it is to remain with him and he is to read from it all the days of his life so that, guess what? He may learn to fear the Lord his God and to observe all the words of his instruction and do these statutes. We begin by consistently reading and meditating upon and internalizing, memorizing these specific strategic passages of Scripture. Uh, Jeremiah 17 is the classic verse about this fear of man versus fear of God. Uh, Jeremiah 17 verses 5 through 8. This is what the Lord says. The man who trusts in mankind, who makes human flesh his strength and turns his heart from the Lord, is cursed. 
He'll be like a bush in the desert. He cannot see when good comes, but dwells in the parched places, in the wilderness, in a salt land where no one lives. Ah, the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is the Lord, is blessed. He will be like a tree planted by water. It sends its roots out toward a stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes, and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. Here's another one. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus said, Don't fear those who, can, who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Proverbs 29, 25. We've already mentioned that one. Isaiah 33, verse 6. There will be times of security for you, a storehouse of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure, and it'll be your treasure and my treasure. Psalm 56, verse 4. Look this one up later. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hebrews, uh, Psalm 118, verse 6, excuse me, Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is for me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Hebrews 13, 6. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Isaiah 40, verse 25, Who will you compare me to, says God, or who is my equal, asks the Holy One. In Psalm 34, verses 9 through 11, You who are His holy ones, fear Yahweh, or fear the Lord. For those who fear Him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Come, children, listen to me, and I will teach you you, the fear of the Lord. Pray with me. Thank you for listening to this week's message. For more information about Dogwood Church, visit www.dogwoodchurch.org.